You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, mechanics making house calls, pink cars taking seniors to be vaccinated, and demanding change to long-term care. But we begin with help for India. To say that it is a country in crisis is a massive understatement. COVID-19 cases in India have surged well past the 21 million mark. The daily death count is in the thousands. Its healthcare system can no longer cope. There's a shortage of vaccines, hospital beds, PPE, medicine, and oxygen. Yes, oxygen. What desperately ill people need to breathe in order to stay alive. India has sent out an urgent plea for help from the global community and Canada is listening. Jacob O'Connor is the VP of Charity Engagement and Growth for Canada Helps. He joins us now on the feed. Thanks so much for having me, Ed. So what is Canada Helps doing to help India? Yeah, um, so, so firstly, uh, CanadaHelps.org, we're a registered charitable foundation, uh, and we operate that website. Um, and what we do there is we provide a safe and trusted one-stop destination um, for Canadians to make donations, fundraise, or learn about any charity in Canada. Um, specific to this crisis, uh, we activated our crisis relief center, um, and this is also a one-stop shop, um, and we activate it in real times of need. Uh, and basically on there, we're listing now over the, over 20 charities that are responding to the crisis in India, so can, Canadians can go and donate. How often have you uh, activated the Crisis Relief Centre in the past? Yeah, so, so this is something that comes up um, really, and, and it's we've had it here at home, here in Canada as well, and internationally. Um, I think this is something that's usually only a couple times of, uh, of the year. Uh, in the past, we've, we've done it for wildfire situations that were here in Canada a couple of years back, if you remember, um, as well as uh, the, the plane crash that happened uh, earlier in 2020. So um, it, it, it is not something that we do all the time, but really when there's a r- real need out there. So you're, uh, you're registered to do this. How do you assist other organizations who want to try to raise money funding to help in situations like the crisis in India? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so, so really we, we help other organizations through providing the, tech, the technology. So uh, primarily we're a technology organization, and so through our platform we enable um, these different organizations, and we, we can talk about a few of them that are responding, um, but we enable these organizations to tap into to our donor base uh, and to Canadians across the country. Some of them are the big-name organizations that we all know, like uh, UNICEF and Canadian Red Cross, two organizations that are responding in India, but we also have um, some, some small organizations that are still doing some amazing and more focused work um, in, in the situation right now. You know, you're very calm as you're delivering this information, but I know that there are people in Canada and around the world and those who are living through this in India who are desperate. They are devastated by what's going on. How do you come to terms with that? And how is that? how does that manifest itself when it comes to the donations and the groups that are looking for donations through Canada Helps? Yeah, it's a difficult time. I, I mean, for the team here at Canada Helps, like, this is what we can do to help in these situations. And so 
this is kind of outside of our normal operation. So we, we do operate that website, CanadaHelps.org. We also provide um, fundraising technology that um, any charity in Canada, Canada can, can access. And, and that's kind of part of our mission as well, is to democratize access to that type of technology for particularly small and medium-sized charities across the country. Um, but when cases like this come out, um, it's really after hours, kind of everything goes to the side, and we're doing everything that we can here at Canada Health to mobilize aid um, from Canada to the situation wherever it is. So for us, it, it kind of becomes an all-hands-on-deck situation. I, I may seem calm, but the team over here is really frantically doing this uh, just to make sure that we can help in whatever way we can. And I think we see the same thing with donors across Canada um, historically, uh, as I said, we've done this uh, a, a few times in real times of need, and uh, Canadians are generous, and they really come to the table uh, when there are situations that need desperate help. Money is one thing, and it's huge, but also there needs to be equipment uh, that is life-saving that needs to be found, purchased, and sent to India. How does Canada Helps facilitate that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another great question. And I think really we, we help you get the funds to the organizations that are going to be delivering that equipment in India or wherever that situation is occurring. Um, so if I bring up one organization um, that you can find at the Crisis Relief Center, it's Global Medic. And, and so um, they're, they're an organization, amazing organization based here uh, in Toronto. Um, and so they're providing life-saving aid like um, oxygen concentrators, uh, pulse oximeters, uh, and then personal protective equipment as well. Um, so with your donation to Global Medic, you are enabling them to purchase and deliver more of this equipment uh, to the people that need it in India. So it's a donation of funds that then enables these charities that are really on the ground and doing the work uh, to do what they need to do. Jacob, is time of the essence right now? Definitely. Um, the situation in India remains quite dire. Um, the 20 million uh, coronavirus case mark uh, has been passed. Uh, the official numbers that we have, um, over 220,000 deaths, uh, and uh, the, the average daily case count uh, climbing up to 400,000 a day. Uh, hospitals are overwhelmed there, and there are oxygen shortages, like you mentioned previously. So, um, as I mentioned, Canadians, uh, we've seen an amazing response thus far, but there's still an extreme need. Um, so any, anything that folks can do to help is, is definitely, of course, appreciated. Jacob O'Connor, Vice President of Charity, Engagement and Growth for Canada Helps, thank you for giving us your time here on the feed. Of course, and thanks again for having me. I'm Tina Cortez. Another charitable organization on the ground in India is Sewa Canada International. Joining us with the details is Vinod Vapapravan. Thank you for your time. Good morning, Tina. Namaste, and it's uh, a pleasure to be on your show. Well, we appreciate your time. So tell us a little bit about your group. What is Sewa Canada International all about? Yeah, so Sewa Canada is a Canadian uh, registered 
uh, sorry, a registered Canadian charity, and we've been around for uh, over two decades. And uh, we work in the area of poverty alleviation, uh, education, healthcare, and uh, disaster relief. These are our core areas, and we uh, f- uh, focus, and most, most of our focus has been in, in developing countries in, in Nepal and India, but we do also some work in Canada, and uh, these, this is our focus area, and we've been focusing on, uh, you know, women empowerment, uh, supporting the girl, child. These have been some of our very uh, focus areas uh, outside of disaster relief. Well, over the last little while, we cannot ignore what is happening in India and how COVID-19 has hit it particularly hard. Can you tell us about what your group has witnessed on the ground there? Yes, it it is a big a tragedy, and uh, the um, our folks on the ground, uh, we do have meetings with them regularly for the last two weeks, and we were part of the first wave as well. We were uh, providing um, relief during the phase of wave one when there was a very strict lockdown, and uh, we had to support people who, who didn't have food or, or the migrant laborers. We had to support them. So during the wave two, uh, the, the, the uh, nature of the virus has changed, and also the, the devastation has been more uh, prominent, and uh, so what we are seeing on, on the ground is uh, a, a lack of oxygen in the initial days. It's getting better now, but uh, oxygen seems to be the most precious commodity that people are looking for. There's also shortage of uh, hospital beds, high-flow oxygen beds. Uh, that's also getting better uh, with time. But these were the two main focus areas in, in the uh, initial part, and even now that we are focusing on. Outside of that, um, there's also um, you know, uh, people... Uh, the cremation of victims and the last rites of passage is very important in the Indian tradition. So once these uh, victims pass away, um, there, uh, there was nobody to handle their bodies and things like that. So our volunteers have been looking at that too. So it, uh, and then also uh, in areas that has been hit by the pandemic, uh, the provincial governments have been enforcing lockdowns in, in selective areas depending on what's needed. And that, uh, that is also causing uh, an economic hardship to the poorest of the poor or the daily wage uh, workers. So we we are also trying to provide food to them. And uh, we are also promoting vaccinations on the ground, uh, you know, trying to get as many people vaccinated so that you know, we can vaccinate our way out of this pandemic in, in the coming months. So uh, well, yeah, there, is, there is despair, there is kind of uh, frustration, there is um, all that is there, but we are trying to uh, focus on what we can do, how we can help, and, you know, um, and, and ride this wave. That's what we are focusing on. Can I ask you, do you have friends or family in India? What are they telling you? Yes, so uh, we do. Uh, I have my own family. My parents are there. Uh, they do. They are vaccinated. They have both shots in their arm. So that's, that's definitely a, a bonus. Uh, but, you know, n- n- many don't have it. And uh, so the, the risk uh, for, for my family and friends I know, it, it is real. And some of my friends don't have the vaccination yet. So uh, there is, there is uh, concern. It's a genuine source of concern for all. Um, but we are trying to do what we can, uh, the best in these uh, circumstances. We are asking friends and families to, uh, you know, um, follow very strict uh, physical distancing protocols and quarantine uh, protocols. We're uh, we're doing that. So we're doing our best uh, among families and friends to uh, follow these uh, protocols. At the same time, we're trying also to help uh, other people, uh, you know, uh, uh, pass through the situation and overcome the situation. Well, obviously, it's an area of, you know, high density of population. The healthcare system is struggling to keep up. Do you have a theory of or why this got 
so out of control, it seems so quickly? Yeah, so I think there were uh, many factors that led to it. I was there personally um, in India a couple of months ago um, for, for personal reasons, and uh, uh, there, there was a feeling of uh, complacency among the people that, you know, we had seen the worst, and there was that feeling. And uh, and many people were just tired of the lockdowns and things like that. And many people, for them, they had to go out and do work to, you know, um, make two ends meet. So that was also a requirement. So uh, overall, there was that complacency, but then this, uh, uh, there were large crowds too. And, and, and then this... Uh, particular form of virus, uh, which is supposed to, you know, which is uh, a mutated version, is, is spreading very quickly. And if you look at the graphs, it kind of shot up exponentially over, over a period of 10 to 14 days. It just kind of shot up. So it, it did blindside a lot of people. And uh, uh, that is also the reality um, that, you know, and, and like you said, it's very densely populated. And once it gets in there, it's very difficult to control. And uh, the health system has been overwhelmed. And with a population of 1.4 billion and heavy density, uh, I'm not sure which health system in the world would have been able to kind of uh, stand this kind of a, a pandemic uh, or, pro- or the proportions of this pandemic. How can our listeners help Sewa Canada International and where do the funds specifically go? Yeah, good question. So we have taken uh, an approach where we want to provide immediate relief and we want to also uh, provide long-term relief. So the immediate relief uh, that right now uh, is the requirement for oxygen concentrators, oxygen itself. That's that's something we are looking at. And we have already shipped 125 oxygen concentrators in the past 10 days. Uh, some of them are making its way to India right now, and uh, some of them have already arrived. And uh, our partners all across the globe uh, are, have also done that. They have shipped up to 3,000 concentrators to New Delhi, and that has arrived as of two days ago. So our partner organizations are focusing on immediate relief on the oxygen front, but what we have also done is we have set up uh, COVID relief camps in 20-plus in, in provinces of India. And uh, these COVID care centers, uh, if you may call them, are providing uh, a source for where people can go and isolate. Uh, and we have sources of oxygen, and we feed them and take care of them. So these are COVID relief centers all over uh, India that our partners in India have opened. So they are doing that. They are also going around to the, you know, the like the highly dense, uh, dense areas that you mentioned. They're going in with oximeters, checking oxygen levels, and uh, uh, with, with thermometers. And, and, you know, and if they need help, uh, if oxygen levels are less, they're getting them to relief centers. They're doing that. They're also providing food to people uh, who are affected uh, by the lockdowns. They're also doing the vaccination programs. They're doing organizing vaccination camps where possible. So they're doing that as well. And then they're doing the cremation services. So these are all the immediate relief uh, um, high-ticket items that we're working on. For the long term, we are also looking at supporting oxygen plants in hospitals, uh, in repurposed community halls, and what we are saying is that wave three and wave four will come, and scientists are saying that too. As the as whole of India gets vaccinated, the 1.4 billion people get vaccinated, there's going to be wave three and wave four. So we want to be ready for that and uh, not be in the same kind of oxygen uh, scarcity situation again. So with whatever limited funds we have, we are trying to uh, divvy that up between short-term relief, immediate relief, 
and long-term relief. And uh, the long-term relief will focus on having oxygen plants in hospitals. Also, we have families who have been, uh, you know, where they have lost both parents or uh, families where the primary breadwinner has been lost. So we're trying to also uh, come up with some programs that uh, they could find some self-employment, you know, start a small business, something like that. So some, some kind of support mechanism for the social impacts from this uh, uh, second wave of the pandemic. So uh, I would like to thank all Canadians who have raised close to close to $400,000 over the last uh, 10 days. And I, I want to thank all the Canadians from all walks of life who have, uh, you know, uh, shown their generosity and support uh, for India during this time. The Canadian government has, has chipped in with their help, which is also very much appreciated and timely. And if anybody wants to help the cause, they could just uh, you know go to sevacanada.com, which is S-E-W-A Canada.com, and there are options for them to donate. So uh, uh, again, I would like to thank everyone who has uh, supported us so far. Vinod, thank you. Such a tragic and difficult situation. Thank you for your work, and please take care and keep in touch. Thank you for having me. Namaste. After the break, Men on the Move for Mental Health. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Since March of 2020, close to 4,000 residents and 11 long-term care staff in Ontario have died from COVID-19. Since then, advocates have been demanding change. Tina Cortez with that story. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos is Associate Professor at Ontario Tech University and long-term care advocate and researcher. Welcome back to the feed, Dr. Stamatopoulos. Thank you for having me. Now, in late April, the Long-Term Care Commission report was released. The more than 300-page document examined the coronavirus spread in nursing homes. Some of the conclusions, not prepared, slow reaction time, meaning decisions and action came too late to save lives. What's your take on the report? I mean, it was bang on in terms of the the failed pandemic response uh, time and time again. And and we knew this was happening all throughout the year because, we were, you know, those of us that were paying attention from the very beginning saw the missed opportunities to, you know, be more proactive and and really act expeditiously, as they pointed out, to properly protect these residents and, and, and fruitfully and actually implement the precautionary principle. And you talk about, you know, understanding and knowing this situation from the beginning. You've been watching the situation for a long time. You had grandparents in the system. These are not new issues, not enough staff, not enough training. There were a number of recommendations. Do you think that any will be implemented? Well, I hope that they would all be implemented, um, you know, particularly if they're true by their word and that they want to do better by these families and that they want to, as, as Minister Fullerton says, fix the problems. Well, we know what the problems are. We didn't even need another report, to be very frank. Um, but again, you know, you, you can't go wrong with having even more damning evidence of failure and what we need to do going forward. So do I think they should? Absolutely. Do I think they will? 
Highly unlikely. There were a number of recommendations, 85 in total, including increased funding and greater focus on compliance. We know that the government has already committed to increased funding and hiring more staff. Isn't that a good start? Here's the reason why it's, um, it's futile, because throwing money at new facilities is, sure, that's part of the equation, but the problem is you're going to build fancy new facilities and nobody is going to want to work in them. And you're going to have the same problems about neglect and abuse and a revolving door of workers because you need to fundamentally address the root causes. The root causes being the terrible working conditions in these facilities. Um, one way you could address that is by implementing the care standard, the minimum four-hour daily care standard right now, not in five years, as they tell us. Right now. It can be done right now. We have estimates. They have the money. They can do it. And, and furthermore, it would put a lot of the onus onto the for-profit providers to have to pay those costs. So it wouldn't really cost the government anything at all. So this is a, it would be a win-win, truly, for them. Uh, the only people that lose in that scenario are the CEOs and the shareholders, frankly. And the second thing they need to do is create permanent wage increases. All What they keep doing is adding, you know, temporary wage enhancements, these, these pandemic pay increases that last, like, you know, two months at a time. The, the next set is, you know, set to expire at the end of June. And we've already been warning them that unless you make it permanent, they're going to leave. We already had a mass, you know, exodus of workers from this workforce over this past year. Many of them left because they're completely traumatized, the few that did stay behind and work in these facilities in the first two waves. Um, and and they just, they're making the very calculated decision that this isn't worthwhile because the pay and the working conditions just don't add up. So how do you think you restore the faith, the trust, you know, for the families? I mean, this is the biggest problem is that the, the families and the public have really lost their, their trust in this government and in this sector, um, particularly the for-profit sector, which has taken a really big hit in the, in the um, you know, the public uh, realm, so to speak. And, um, I, you know, I always say, and I, I teach my students, of course, on restorative justice, and, and one of the, you know, the first steps to making amends is assuming responsibility, you know, owning your role in what happened. And, and so far, this government has failed to accept any responsibility for the woefully um, unprepared pandemic response. There was no pandemic response. And even when, you know, you're trying to make it up as you go, you were ignoring the experts who were telling you to do things, let's say Quebec was doing, do things that say BC was doing, which led to decreased mortality in those provinces. So, you know, until you accept wrongdoing and admit your role in this and, and show some genuine empathy and, and understanding of how traumatic this was for, for everyone really on, on the ground floor, the workers, the residents, their families, there is no amends to be made. There is no building or rebuilding of trust until that happens. Now, look, I'm not here to defend the government, but, you know, the minister earlier this week said that this problem started long before her government was in power. What do you want to say to that then? Because this has been going on for quite some time. It's not just under, you know, yeah. under the Ford government that this has happened. 100%, no doubt. And, and for me, the, the issue is the failed pandemic response, right? So I do not begrudge anyone for the pre-existing problems. I focus on what has happened since this government took place in particular, took power. So Minister Fullerton, when she began her, you know, her tenure as Minister of Long-Term Care, one of the first things that she did was cut the resident quality inspections devastating mistake, which was crucial to, you know, highlighting problems before they really became disastrous issues. Um, and, and every single report, the Auditor General's report, the Long-Term Care Commission report, every single person has highlighted that this was a huge mistake. They're still not reinstated to this day. Some level of mortality was to be expected because we knew there were historic problems, but never did it have to get to this point. 
So where do we go from here? How do we make sure a tragedy of this magnitude doesn't happen again? Well, I mean, I think three immediate actions need to be increasing the penalties for noncompliance. These places never change their bad behavior because they get only written up. They get written warnings. That, that never has changed behavior in the history of civilization. Uh, so we need strict financial penalties that, indeed, the Wynn government had passed prior to being voted out, which is too bad because, you know, upon taking, you know, power a year later, Ford just left that bill by the wayside, which would have levied up to 100000 in financial penalties for repeat offenders. And then we need to do two of those things I mentioned before. Legislate the CARE standard right now put the onus, force the hand of these for-profit providers to have to start hiring enough people because there's just never historically been enough people in these facilities. The municipal homes, keep in mind, and the not-for-profit homes have far better staffing. They don't have the same levels of attrition and revolving door that the for-profits do because the basis of their model and, and, you know, profit attrition or profit, you know, creating profit comes at attrition of staff, frankly, and, and from not having cutting on labor costs. And we all know this. Every business knows this. And that's a huge problem with the for-profit model. So legislate the care standard now and create permanent wage increases for the majority PSWs that work in this sector. And then we can start doing a whole you know, a slew of things of addressing the staffing mix, of addressing, you know, really starting to revoke licenses for bad actors and actually showing that we value this life and, and we're not just going to allow this ongoing negligence contributing, you know, in this case, to widespread death, then we're just not going to allow it anymore. Well, we'll continue to watch what happens in long-term care. Professor, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you. Stress and anxiety have increased dramatically during this pandemic, but there are ways to improve our mental health. Jim Lang is on the move with the details. The Canadian Men's Health Foundation of Canada is proud to announce Men's Health Month from June 1st to June 30th. And the theme this year is Move Your Mental Health. And considering everything we've gone on over the last past year and a half almost, the, the timing and the theme couldn't be more perfect. Thrilled to be speaking to a dear friend, an old friend, who's the president and CEO of the Canadian Men's Health Foundation, T.C. Carling. T.C., how are you? I'm well, Jim. Thank you. And I appreciate you having me on to talk about such an important topic for all of us. It, you know, it really is, and, um, and you have such a diverse group of uh, the different people involved, from uh, Dan Murphy, I used to work with, Kevin Bieksa, Trevor Linden, Simon Whitfield, Kelly Rudy, and people think, oh, NHL player, Olympian. We forget these people, even performing at the highest levels physically, they also have issues physically and mentally, just like the rest of us. Uh, in, yeah, indeed, and, and I'm... And for years growing up, I've thought, um, and, and I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm 45. I've had anxiety for 35 years, so I've, I've, I've lived to learn with it, uh, learned to live with it, and use different tools, which I'm happy to share with others. But I've always thought that the thing about mental health is that it doesn't discriminate. And uh, I was speaking to a therapist uh, who's supporting our program the other day, and she referred to uh, mental health as the great equalizer. But the reality is, it doesn't matter if you're rich, you're poor your color, your race, your religion, your age, it really doesn't matter. Uh, it's, uh, we all have mental health, and at times we all have mental health challenges. And, um, you know, we believe at the Canadian Men's Health Foundation that I, uh, it's always been important to talk about your, your mental health. Without, physical, without mental health, there is no physical health, Jim. I think you know that as well. Yeah. And the reality is the pandemic, what the pandemic has done these last 14, 15 months is for those who have had mental health challenges in the past, it is like we amplified them. And for many people who have never really struggled with their mental health, they've struggled with their mental health in some form this past year because of stress, 
anxiety and in some cases loneliness with the various restrictions on seeing people. So, um, you know, this month, uh, the month of June coming up, we really want to get men and their families to learn something, to talk about it and get them moving. You know, TC, I, I think about people who maybe had some uh, touches or fringes of mental health issues, but didn't really understand it or weren't aware of it because pre-COVID, what they would do, uh, being active, and it didn't really hit home. And I think sometimes the, the weeks and months of isolation and the pandemic, then things really hit home. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think there's any question about that. I think at times we can preoccupy ourselves to the point where we sort of make our troubles go away, if you will, because we're in such a uh, flurry of activity in our lives. We all lived in that manner. And then I think once you are forced to slow yourself down because of the fact that uh, you may be working at home or teaching your children at home or not seeing people and not going out and socializing, you have a lot more time to sort of spend uh, on your own and thinking about things. And let's be honest, these last 14 months have been, you know, I, 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 I'd like to think I know a little more about anxiety than I would ideally like to, but the reality is anxiety was rooted in uncertainty. People with anxiety are looking for some type of certainty. And the pandemic has done nothing else but provide a lot of uncertainty. Even for people who didn't uh, know they had any mental health challenges or hadn't experienced it in the past, if you don't know when you get up in the morning if your children are going to school, if your business will be open, if you're commuting to your office, if you can go out for social activity, will the restaurant be open? Whatever it is, can I see a loved one? Um, it's just been nothing but uncertainty for the last 14 months. And so finding a new normal uh, with, and finding a new way to ground yourself, I think, has been really important. Um, what, well, let me just give you a little bit of a framework on, on the programming coming up, if you will. And so what sure. we're going to do in the month of June is we're going to have four virtual speaking events every Wednesday, starting June 2nd, and four uh, fitness events every Saturday in the month of June, uh, starting that first week. And so we've picked out four themes uh, to discuss, to talk, to have meaningful discussions about in the month of June. And we do kick it off on June 2nd with how to start a conversation about mental health. And on the same thing, how to support someone who confides in you, because not everybody is armed with the tools that if someone comes to them, we often talk about how important it is to talk to somebody, to get talking or to start a conversation. But if you don't have the right tools to handle that conversation when somebody approaches you, then you might lose that opportunity. And so Dan Murphy from Rogers Sportsnet uh, will, um, will moderate this conversation with, with Kevin and Dr. Badali. And, and Kevin, Kevin, uh, Kevin has a long history of being a mental health advocate. For those of you uh, perhaps not as familiar, but the Canucks had a player in the late 2000s and early 2010s named Rick Riffin, a yeah. beloved teammate of the Canucks, the hardest-working guy every year, uh, the fitness testing. It was Daniel Henrik Rick. Rick Daniel Henrik, just a, a tremendous athlete, former captain of the Regina Pats, an undrafted player, just uh, played bigger than he was because of his heart and his determination. But from the time about Rick was about 13 or 14 years old, he started to see and experience signs of depression, anxiety, and mental health challenges. And they, they got to a point where um, he didn't want to play in the National Hockey League anymore. And, and you can imagine reaching the pinnacle of your career and your life in your early to mid-20s and feeling so challenged by your mental health that you don't want to live out that dream. You can imagine how challenging that was and the difficult place that Rick was in. And so Kevin and his wife, Katie, at some point had Rick live with them as they tried to make, uh, help him get better. And uh, as somebody who had the chance to get to know Rick uh, very well, uh, and worked with him on a number of things. Um, most notably, 
uh, Rick confided in me his, his mental health challenges and his desire to help young people struggling with these same issues. And uh, the goal was that Rick would get better, uh, feel stronger, and he would be out there um, delivering that powerful message that he had. Um, but unfortunately, 10 years ago, this coming August, August 15th, 2011, uh, Rick passed away from his depression. And so um, Kevin has not stopped talking about it and not stopped trying to help people. And uh, CMHF is very grateful that he is lending his voice as one of our national champions and will We'll have a meaningful discussion with um, Dr. Badali and Dan on June the 2nd. Speaking with T.C. Carling, the president and CEO of the Canadian Men's Health Foundation, menshealthfoundation.ca. Get registered for Move Your Mental Health beginning June 2nd with the hashtag Move Mental Health. Uh, so many great different topics covered on the series of four weeks. And Tommy Europe used to play the CFL, who is about the most shredded athlete I've ever seen, hosting virtual workouts. And you do talk about the importance of daily movement, daily exercise. It's almost clear in mind and how the, the I guess the relationship between those daily exercise and daily movement with your mental health. Absolutely. And, and, and the areas that we want to focus on for this, for this entire campaign is what we're calling mild to moderate stress, anxiety, and loneliness. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what has been shown um, is that physical activity, daily movement, can be very effective at ha- helping people with mild to moderate uh, anxiety, stress, and mental health challenges. And so the Canadian Men's Health Foundation, for seven or eight years now, since our, since our launch in 2014, has been talking about the importance of healthy eating, proper sleep, and daily activity. It's not, uh, we don't expect, you know, we, we're, we're fortunate to, um, to have some national champions like Simon Whitfield. We're not asking anybody in the month of June to get off the couch and, and become the Olympic gold medalist in Australia. <laughs> yeah. what, but but what, what Simon will talk about, uh, I'm certain, is, is just the daily routine of whether that's the paddleboard, taking your kids to the park, mowing the lawn, uh, getting outside, hopefully golfing. And I don't mean to uh, <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> talk about <laughs> a topic that uh, can be challenging. But you know, walking in the park, uh, you know, whatever, whatever the restrictions are within your respective area across our, our great country, uh, you know, whether it's a walk with one friend or a family walk or a chance to go to, in our case, I live in British Columbia, go to the, to the, to the trees or go to the ocean, um, wherever that is, but get some physical activity each and every day. It'll either, it'll either reset your day if your day is not quite going the way you want it, or it'll kick off your day in the right, in the right way. And, and it's, it's been scientifically proven that physical activity can have a profoundly positive impact on your mental health. I cannot recommend this enough. The Canadian Men's Health Foundation, Move Your Mental Health, the month of June, June 1st to June 30th. Go to menshealthfoundation.ca, learn more, register, hashtag Move Mental Health. T.C. Carling is the president and CEO, and I'm proud to call him a friend. T.C., keep up the great work. You are helping save lives in this country, and I couldn't be more proud of you. Jim, I'm really uh, grateful for you having us on, and um, thank you for championing this program with us. And I really look forward to... um as many people getting involved with us this month of June. Thank you so much. Here, here. When we come back, your driveway mechanic is on call. That story is next. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. Now that your vaccine appointment is booked, how do you get there? 
Pink cars to the rescue. Heather Seaman is in the driver's seat for this one. Accessing and scheduling online vaccination appointments is not an easy process by any means, especially for seniors, many of whom are not tech savvy and who face a host of other challenges during this pandemic. Joining us is Shanta Sundarayson, founder of the volunteer-driven Pink Cars Group. They help seniors book appointments and get to clinic locations to get their shots. Shanta, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about Pink Cars and how the idea came about. So a couple of days before the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccination process here in York Region, I got a couple of frantic phone calls for some seniors in my community. A couple of them were stressing out because they didn't have a computer and they didn't know how they were going to be able to book an appointment because from their understanding, they had to do it online. Some did have a computer, but they weren't very computer savvy and they were concerned about how they found the right website and so on and so forth. Um, others were wondering how they were going to get to and from their vaccination centers because they didn't drive. And there was just a lot of stress and anxiety in the voices of the seniors that I just knew that I had to step up and I had to find a way to help them. So I sat back, talked to my family for about an hour and I came up with the idea that I was going to get a group of volunteers together and we were going to do what we could to be their computer, to be their brain, and to be able to help them um, book the appointments on their behalf. Um, and we were also going to reach out to see if there were any other volunteers in the community that would be willing to offer some safe, comfortable rides for the seniors to and from the vaccination appointments. So that's what really started it off. What has the response been from, from the community to Pink Cars and the work the group is doing? The response has been overwhelming from both sides. From those that are in need of help, we've helped thousands of people so far. And also from the volunteer side, there are so many amazing people out there just wanting to be able to help in some way. So what does a typical day look like? So when we get up in the mornings, there are three of us that are dedicated to booking appointments. We then go onto the booking system to see what appointments are available. Most of the time, there aren't any. So we sit there and we keep pressing the refresh button to catch cancellations. This sounds a bit confusing, but um, it's difficult for a lot of people to do it or to understand. But there are cancellations that come in periodically so we're able to catch quite a few cancellations and fill those bookings for the request within 48 hours of receiving a, a request for a booking. Once we've managed to fill that booking, we then contact the senior or the person that's requested it to let them know the details. Some of them require a, a help with getting to and from the vaccination centers, and that's where we have another group of volunteers, some volunteer drivers that have offered to do that, and they will arrange a pickup. They will pick the senior up, drive them to the appointment. They will take them in if they need some guidance um, with language. Some, some people have language barriers and are a little concerned about translation when they get into the center, so our um, volunteers will go in with them if necessary, but they will certainly wait for them until they finish, whether it takes 10 minutes, half an hour, two hours, our volunteers sit and wait, and then they bring them back home again. So that's a typical day. What age groups do you work with, and how do people find you? 
At the moment, we've been really helping out those that are 70 and above because it's that age group that are struggling the most with going online and booking and trying to decipher the booking system, which is really very confusing. And it's also the, those in that sort of age group that either haven't got a car or you know, have stopped driving or just don't drive. So that's the age group we're really targeting right now to help. So we're trying to focus our time and energy helping those that really need it. However, we are giving some guidance and support to those in between the age of 65 as well and above because deciphering the booking system is difficult, but we are finding that we probably don't need to offer rides to that segment. Um, a lot of people that do have a computer, they can find us online. Our, our website is so simple to fill out a form on, and it's www.pinkcars. Ca, but we do also have a hotline, and we typically answer the phone within 30 seconds, and if not, we return a phone call within the hour. It's a volunteer group, so how does Pink Car sustain itself? Through love, and I keep telling everybody, literally through love. But no, I have to say we have had a couple of amazing community support groups come up and help support us. So we've got the Finlayson group that runs six local McDonald's in um, Markham, Stovall, and Richmond Hill. And they've come forward and helped us with a donation of some gas cards, which we will help provide to our volunteer drivers. Because a lot of them that are volunteering for us are volunteering because either they've lost jobs during COVID or some are retired. And so although there's no money in it, we, we have got very kind donations from a lot of these organizations, such as McDonald's and Toyota have loaned us a car from Stouffville to help us drive our seniors around. So we do have some very kind volunteers within the community, but otherwise we sustain ourselves out of just our own pockets and out of love. If anyone's interested in volunteering, how can they get involved? Um, If you go to our website, pinkcars.ca, we do have a link for volunteers. And so it's very easy for anybody wanting to help us in any way to just click onto, onto that link and just send us a little um, blurb as to how they'd like to help. Do you have a final message for our listeners, especially seniors? Well, first, I just want to say thank you to all our volunteers from Pink Cars. And if there are any seniors out there still struggling to get themselves an appointment, to please get in touch with us. Call our hotline because we're only going to be able to get over this war as soon as we get those vaccinations into the arms of everyone in our community. Thanks again for joining us, Shanta, and for the great work you're doing in the community. Not at all. Thanks. Thanks for helping spread the word, because honestly, we're not going to get through this until everyone gets that vaccination. And to keep you driving all night long and all day too, you need a great mechanic. How about one that makes house calls? Convenient, cost-efficient, and extra careful during these COVID times. Robert Ostfield, the founder of Wheel, spelled W-E-E-L, joins us now with the nuts and bolts of Home Driveway Auto Servicing, a.k.a. Mobile Mechanics. Thanks for spending a little time with us today on the feed, Robert. Thanks for having me. So you're a car guy, you're a tech entrepreneur, you combined the two. How did you come up with the idea of home driveway car servicing? 
Well, certainly, uh, I am a car nut, as you said, uh, and uh, I actually had some experience working at a car dealership when I was in school, uh, which is uh, kind of taught me three lessons um, working in the service department of a car dealership. The first thing that I learned is I did not want to be in the traditional retail car business. It's an extremely tough uh, competitive business. The second thing that I learned uh, working in the service department of this car dealership is that the general consumer knows nothing about cars. Uh, cars are a mystery box to them. The way that I look at my refrigerator is the same way that most people look at their cars. I want it to look pretty. I want it to work, but I don't want to think about it. And the third thing that I learned, which is really relevant to what we've been doing with Wheel, is that when you're in the car business, most people don't trust you. So, you know, as a junior part-time service advisor at this car dealership, I would explain to a customer, I'm sorry to report that your car needs new brakes and it's going to cost $1,000, and it's like I punched them in the face. It's like they're saying, how do I know it needs brakes? Why does it cost so much? And how can I trust you? So those two lessons inspired Wheel. And Wheel was born as a way to try to create a more transparent, easier experience uh, for, for automotive repair. So through uh, our platform, uh, people can log in and say, hey, I want my summer tires put on or I want an oil change. And we can send a certified mechanic uh, to their house or office uh, to perform warranty-approved service on the vehicle. And the price is already disclosed uh, up front. And for any issue that may be more complicated that requires a service facility or a hoist that can't be performed on your, at your home, uh, we have a vetted uh, network of brick-and-mortar repair facilities that we can direct the customer or arrange to get the car brought to those facilities so the customer doesn't need to leave their home. So how important is Wheel and what it is that you're trying to do? During COVID-19, we're in a, a lockdown, a stay-at-home order. Safety concerns for drivers uh, take uh, the front seat, if you will. How does Wheel work to protect the customer? Yeah, so COVID precautions uh, are certainly front and center for our business and safety in general, just given the nature we're working on cars, is, uh, is front and center, uh, what we do. And uh, so all of our technicians, uh, of course, uh, have proper COVID-19 uh, protective gear, and we try to eliminate having to go into the car, touching any of the same surfaces uh, and knobs and buttons that the customer uh, would, have, would touch while in the car. And, uh, and then, of course, because we're working outside, we're actually not really interacting with the customer that much, uh, so everyone should be protected um, uh, be- because of these precautions. And for the most part, the customer can sit inside his or her home or apartment or backyard while you're doing the work and not have to sit in a waiting room with other people nearby. 100%. So, you know, we ask the customer, have the car parked in a safe location. If you want us to swap your tires, have the tires inside the car. You don't even have to see us. You leave the key in the mailbox, leave the key under the mat, and we'll take it from there. And if there's anything that we need to talk to you about, say, hey, maybe you need to consider putting your brakes on or anything of that nature, we're happy to send them pictures or give them a call. Or if they feel comfortable, they're welcome to come out and, and have a look for themselves. So let's just pretend I need mm-hmm. my winter tires swapped out. I need mm-hmm. an oil change. What would I do? I, I have a driveway. I have a home. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would book with you. What happens next? Yep. So uh, even before that, we would book uh, through our website. The price is disclosed up front, so no surprises. Uh, you would uh, confirm that you indeed want us uh, to come at this specific time. You'd then be given a window. Uh, the only thing that you need to do on your end, uh, again, is just have the car uh, parked in a safe place, preferably in your driveway, 
have the tires beside the car so the technician doesn't have to go up ladders or big to your garage in order to get them out. And he takes it from there. And, uh, of course, all the proper precautions for COVID are taken. But we also want to make sure that we're not damaging your property. So there's uh, protection that's put down to make sure there's no oil that leaks onto your driveway or leaks into your grass, uh, things of that nature. And, again, the important part is that you may have a vehicle that's under warranty to your manufacturer, but all the service that we perform is warranty approved. So we're making sure we're using uh, fluids and parts that are warranty approved and manufacturer approved, and we're documenting everything so your warranty is not compromised. So give me a list of all of the different things that you can do on a driveway as opposed to having the car being brought to a mechanic's shop. Yeah, so about 80% of automotive maintenance and repair can be done on your driveway. Uh, so think, think, think of things like your oil change, swapping your tires. We even do new tire installations. If you need a new set of tires, we'll come to your house uh, and put them on, put new batteries in, brakes, general inspections. We even can do windshields uh, on your driveway. So basically the, all the day-to-day stuff that your car would need uh, from a regular maintenance standpoint, we can easily perform uh, at your home or at your office. And you are dependable, you're clean and tidy, and you are certified as well. We're certified, uh, and that's one of the beauties about what WHEEL does, is that we have this network that we built of mobile uh, technicians. And one of the things that we do is we, we curate and we vet the best technician to work on your vehicle. So, for, for example, one of our technicians is a German car expert. He worked at a German car dealership for about 15 years. He has all the certifications that you could get from that manufacturer. He is an expert on, on, uh, on those types of vehicles. If you have one of those types of vehicles, we're going to send him because we know he's the guy uh, that's best suited to work on it because that's the issue with vehicles today. It becomes super complex. And it's not like you just go necessarily, depending on the kind of car you have, to the guy around the corner who can, who can fix it. Because the tools you need are so specialized, training is so specialized, uh, the guy around the corner may not be the best person to work in your vehicle, but WHEEL is making sure we're having someone qualified who's going to perform the service in that vehicle. So for the most part, you're hoping the work can be done on the driveway or in the area near the homeowner, uh, as opposed to having the car taken to a bricks and mortar. Let's talk about the hourly rate. That can be absolutely shocking when people hear what the hourly rate is. What's your hourly rate? Yes, for our mobile service, the first hour is $120, and then every subsequent hour is $110. And if you live in the greater Toronto area, uh, there's, that includes your distance charge. You're not paying additional time or additional fees to have the guy drive to your house. That's all built into that. And then, of course, if there's any parts or anything of that that, that are required, we would certainly quote that uh, beforehand. But the cost of parts should be no different to us than it should, uh, as it would be going to a traditional brick-and-mortar fare facility because the parts are still the same. Sometimes, in the case of uh, a lot of our customers, a lot of our customers are driving higher-end vehicles, um, and we are actually sometimes cheaper than going to their dealership. The cost of servicing higher-end vehicles has really, uh, you know, has increased over the past few years, um, and wheel oftentimes is cheaper than going to those dealerships. Robert Osfield, the founder of Wheel Home Driveway Auto Servicing, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Thank you very much. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com for the podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.